My guest today is an award-winning writer. He's written for a lot of different publications, and his latest book is called Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. Uh, so I'm pleased to welcome to the Veteran Gamers Podcast, Tom Bissell. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Anything you want to say about the book in general before we start? Uh, what's your basic thesis? Why do games matter? I've gotten a little bit of trouble uh, explaining why I think video games matter. I love games because I view them as like a new storytelling medium. That's, that's what I love about games. That's the thing that attracts me to games. But a lot of people are like, games are not primarily a narrative medium. They're not a storytelling medium. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actually ex- accept that. Right. What I accept is that I don't think they're a storytelling medium in the way that we have hitherto been able to understand storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I'm not asking for games to be more like movies. Right. I'm asking games to come up with a form of storytelling that feels really good and appropriate to the, the way the medium has developed. So... I think games matter because what is happening you know, before our eyes in real time to people who play a lot of games is actually watching this form of storytelling get better and better and smarter and smarter in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But then you know, I will have people say to me, yeah, well, you can't beat the storytelling of the first Legend of Zelda. And in a way, I see what they mean, but I want my stories to be more than archetypally moving. You know, I, want to, I want them to engage me across the whole spectrum of human yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like a number of people are saying that technology is a key to that and that games have an opportunity because of their technology to involve us in a way that's never been possible before. And obviously the interactivity is part of that. But I'm not so sure that technology's rise will necessarily equal a rise in quality storytelling. Well, you wrote, wrote about this very well in your piece. Uh, I, think, I think, if I may paraphrase your, your view, is sure. that what gets us involved in characters and storytelling games isn't the mere active interactivity. It is the skill with which the storyteller allows us to experience interactive paths yeah. within the game narrative system, right? right? And it's only when that stuff is well-written and well-done is that it matters at all. Like, I've, I've been playing Alpha Protocol a bit lately, mm-hmm. and the mother of all video game storytelling is this actual story that feels as though the branching stuff of it, your actions actually matter, they mean something. But the game is so abominably written, and the <laughs> characters are so repulsive yeah. and inadequate that it just goes to show you, just as you say, technology really has much less to do with this than we think. Mm-hmm. It's sure. it's actually a lot more old-fashioned than, than most of us recognize, I right, think. Right. And you mentioned in the book about the trip you take to Bioware and how they seem to have an understanding of how to write a good video game. Can you just say a little bit about what their process is like and why maybe other game developers don't learn from them? Well, I think part of it is that they just have a lot of writers on staff and they're not people that are contracted out. Right. They don't like futz around for the concept and say, hey, here's a bunch of shit we've come up with. <laughs> Tie all this together. Right. They, the writers are actually working alongside the level designers, working alongside the concept artists, working alongside the, the coders. Everyone is part of the same sort of conceptual driving force. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of tell that those games are written from the bottom up rather than, or from the top down, I guess, rather than 
well, I don't know what the appropriate metaphor would be. <laughs> but integrated the, into the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The writers are integrated into the process. Yeah. And, you know, not every game needs a writer and not every game needs an explicit narrative. But for that kind of a game, not only do you need writers, you need damn good ones. And they have so many there that, as uh, Drew Carpershin, the head writer at Bioware, told me that one of the reasons they were all... The, the, the dialogue in those games is, is as good as it is is because everyone there knows their stuff is going to be seen by other writers. Mm-hmm. And they're always revising each other. And I don't think that happens at other game companies. One of the things that surprised me the most in the book was in the acknowledgments, you credited Harry Allen, the media assassin for <laughs> Public Enemy, because of a conversation that you had with him. And for those who don't listen to Public Enemy, shame on you. He's sort of a, a media consultant for them, a PR flack, perhaps we could say. Well, I'm just so curious to know, when and where did you talk to Harry Allen, and what did you talk about that made you want to write this book? Uh, well, this is really funny. So I guess it would have been like... 2004, I got invited through various circuitous means to the New York City launch party for Rockstar's ping pong game. Do you remember that? Yeah, oh yeah. Table tennis? Uh I love that game. Someone told me it was a demo to make sure that the physics that they were working on were good enough for GTA 4. I don't know if there's any truth to that. Really? That's what I heard. Well, I love that game. I think it's great. It's one of the better sports games that I played. Call ping pong a sport. I was just going to say that. <laughs> so um, Harry Allen was the PR guy for Rockstar's effort there. So Harry Allen was there and you know I was a he- I was a teenage black nationalist when you know when I was a kid. <laughs> and I listened to Public Enemy and I was all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I can remember Harry Allen saying, "Don't believe the hype." And uh, <laughs> But not and, about this video game. You can believe Not about this video game. No, he was talking about. So uh, Harry Allen's at this party and I'm like, "Oh my god, you're Harry Allen and you're working in video game PR. That's awesome." <laughs> Talk about a guy who's ahead of the curve, you know. Yeah. So we just started talking. He talked to me about what drove him into game PR and what he liked about games. Really just starting to get really interested in games. Uh, my interest predated that, obviously. But my the, the real intensification of my interest sort of occurred around 2004 to 2006. And then really kind of went bananas in 2007, 2008. So I met Harry on this party and we just talked about it. And I remember he said something like, someone's got to write a really good book about games that's not about the business and that kind of stayed with me and I didn't really imagine I was going to be that guy but, but you give it a shot you dedicate the book to your brother Jono who uh, at whom I first threw a joystick and I've just got to know why do you remember why you threw the joystick at him what game you were playing yeah we used to play uh Atari 2600 together yeah. and uh, I think I threw the joystick at him during Asteroids because I was really doing well and I was coming up on my high score and he tur- actually just le- reached over and turned the machine off right oh, in front of me. That's justifiable homicide in some states. Well, you know, the games we played a lot Warlords, mm-hmm. I remember that, I that. Yeah. Crawl, Crawl had an, actually a surprisingly good game I remember uh, loving the movie. I don't think I ever played the game. Yeah, well, anytime you can sneak a crawl reference into something. <laughs> Absolutely. In the first-person section about Resident Evil, and it's sort of written in a way that's, I guess it's second-person, because you're saying you go down the hall and you turn this way and that way. And I'm not sure if this is meant to be your own opinion or you're projecting it onto a reader, perhaps, that Mist comes across, quote, as a warm milk soporific. And I'm, I love Mist. I've just been just so passionately in love with it ever since I played it. I'm just curious to know if that's your own opinion, what, what your beef is with yeah, Mist. I'm yeah. ready to fight just, you right now, man. I just never got it. I didn't get it. Really? I didn't get Mist. Mm-hmm. Mist just made me want to lie down. But my high school and college girlfriend loved Mist. It's the only game. Oh, she also played SimCity. But then would have nervous breakdowns when, they were an earth, when an earthquake would hit it. Okay, talking about Resident Evil, you mentioned at one point that, and I definitely agree with this, that Resident Evil doesn't hit all cylinders the way it might 
because it never goes beyond the surface. And you mentioned that a good horror movie will really go beneath the surface. It, it addresses something that is not immediately obvious. And it made me think about Fear 2, because that game, in some ways, is constantly referring to intergenerational conflict, and there's the whole thing with the school and other items like that. Do you see any horror games that do go beneath the surface and address things in any meaningful way? Well, you know, it's tricky, because... I don't want to say, like, a, a horror story is serious because it, like, quote, addresses something. Right. Because, you know, that can just also be a ticket to god-awful pretentiousness as well. <laughs> right. I'll tell you the horror games that I love. I love Dead Space. Mm-hmm. I love Resident Evil 4, which, you, you know, all the subtext of all the Resident Evil games, the thing that they're about is actually they're about... Uh, Japanese developers desperately trying to imitate American action heroes yeah. and coming up with something so inexplicable and kind of off. You, you know, it's just sort of, it's off in that really weird way that yeah. it's just, you just don't get the details right. And so, well, we're talking about horror games that really affected us. I, I've, you know, Silent Hill 2, Shattered Memories, mm-hmm. I remember, I only played it once, mm-hmm. but I remember be- finding that game unbelievably beautiful and almost so upsetting, I never wanted to go back to it. Mm. But I remember that game having images that stuck in my head in a way that uh, I only really associate with like first-rate horror films, like mm. something, you know, The Thing. Oh, sure. You mentioned that, you said in discussing uh, the end of Bioshock, uh, the death of Andrew, Andrew Ryan has such a weird, dramatic richness, not because of how well Andrew Ryan's hair has, has been rendered, but because of what he is saying while he dies. And I guess my question for, for that is, you know, considering the resonance this has had with so many players, so many people you talk to, when you ask them, you know, a great example of a beautiful game that is a total experience, you know, nine times out of ten, you'll hear Bioshock come up in yeah. that conversation. Why do you think that's so rare? It felt like from its concept to its art design to its gameplay mechanics to, you know, the the literary storytelling stuff actually embedded in the game, it all felt like it was part of the same thing. In a way, even really good action games don't. Like, and my, my great example is this, is the action game in which the hero is desperately trying to save someone he loves. And so, therefore, the game is suggesting an overarching emotional framework of a guy for whom human life means something. Mm-hmm. And yet he will march through room after room, slaughtering absolutely everybody <laughs> to, you know, to get to the final. And so there's like, a, there's a radioactively glowing, like weird inconsistency at the heart of the entire game right. design. Right. Bioshock doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. You're a faceless, nameless being mm-hmm. driven by forces you can't understand mm-hmm. through room after room. And you're a killing machine and you don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you realize why at that last scene and it's it all just kind of clicks most games don't have that clicky moment you know and that's what i think bioshock did so well is that it 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 committed to a vision it sold it on every possible channel as well as it could and it all made sense until the absolutely horrid last 20 percent of the game right i think i had a more frustrating experience playing bioshock than a lot of people did because i'm very bad at conserving my ammunition so for a good part of the (laughs) game i was using the wrench primarily and just getting frustrated but the other thing that i noticed about bioshock and I think this is something that a lot of games have to confront, and I don't think anybody's really found a way to get over this hurdle, is that it seems like there are necessarily going to be sort of episodes along the way of the story. And, for instance, in Bioshock, at one point, you're moving into this new level that is a 
musical, or, you know, practice hall thing, and, and you had to find these different people and kill them and then put their pictures up. And that felt, obviously, yes, part of this whole thematic horror show of people going crazy, but it also felt like here's this area for you to explore in a way that doesn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the story being told. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. And it, what it suggests is that all this stuff is so obviously in the eye of the beholder, you know, what's convincing and what's not. I love that sequence of Bioshock 1, uh, the Sander Cohen sequence. I thought it was amazing. But I could, you know, now that I'm hearing you say that, of course, it's as artificial and dumb as any kind of video game <laughs> setup. But I don't know. I bought it. I bought almost everything in that game. Sure. And in like open world games, it seems too that if you have main missions, that's going to lead to a story, obviously. But then you have side missions that detract from the story. And the writing has to be done in such a way that if you, let's say, you do mission X with person A, uh, and then you go off and do another mission, you come back to person A, they have to pretend like, oh, they haven't seen you in a while. But if you do that second mission immediately after the first, right. one, they're going to react in the same way, and that's very disjointing as well. I think it is, and I, but I think that that is just one of those weird video game curiosities like you know in a sitcom no one laughs at anyone's jokes even right. though the jokes are very funny <laughs> yeah. because it's a necessary formal part of the way that the form works that if everyone in sitcoms were constantly cracking up at what they said sort of what made sitcoms sitcoms would disappear yeah. so I've come to the place that we're like that weird thing if you do a Bonnie McFarlane mission in Red Dead walk away mm-hmm. And then walk right back to the start Bonnie McFarlane mission again. And she's like, Mr. Marston, how are you? You know, um, and it's like, bitch, I just saw you. <laughs> you, know? um, you just accept that that's the way the games are structured to function. Sure. And you have to accept that that's an artificiality. So here's my whole thing. I accept that those are artificialities, but it's like the unnecessarily stupid video game artificialities that I have made Mm -hmm. my mortal enemy Mm -hmm. that I really hate. That's stuff I have less patience for. So, So would you say, have you finished Red Dead? Yeah. And would you say that you consider that story well told? I mean, I, I was yeah, very yeah, impressed yeah. with it. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. Um, I, I just loved that Marston character so much. Sure. I thought that was the most astonishing vocal performance I've ever seen in the game, sure. the guy who did Marston. Okay, Far Cry 2. I love many things about Far Cry 2. I felt like it was a really beautiful experiment and that they did a lot of things exactly right. And you point out in the book a lot of the risks that they take in terms of everything being sort of in that first-person view, looking at the map involves pulling out the actual map and so forth and so on. But I felt like the flaws which you deal with very openly and, and another thing I love about the book is that it it doesn't it's not afraid to criticize things that need criticizing but also praise the things that are praiseworthy in a game and you know for instance you said about that game only rarely do you have the faintest fucking clue as to what narratively is going on which is exactly what I thought every time I went out on a mission why am I doing this who am I doing it for which who's is this what? what what's that guy who's calling me now you know yeah. I mean because again this seems to come into the question of how do you structure that kind of open world game in a way that doesn't be the player over the head with the story but also doesn't assume that the player can keep up when it's clear that it's very hard to do so. I think they do it as well as they can. They keep the dialogue to a minimum. Mm-hmm. Everyone always identifies themselves pretty clearly. I love how they, you know, in those sequences when you go into rooms to talk to people, you know, your gun is sort of lowered permanently. Right. But then when you're talking to, like, one of your uh, buddies out in the field, you can just shoot them in the head and they die. Sure. I love how, uh, like, final that is. Right. I don't really think the game has that many flaws, actually. I think for the experience that it sets out to give you, it gives you a pretty great uh, great experience. I know a lot of people hate driving in the game, that the missions are also far away from each other. Well, the constantly respawning enemies was the thing that frustrated them. Yeah, well, I found out about that talking to people at Ubisoft, is that developing that game, it was, their first, it was a lot of the people's first open-world game. Mm. 
which is kind of hard to believe that that was their first go at an yeah, open world game. And so, you know, you're, you're basically going to open world university when you're making your first open world game. Right. And the great fear that everyone at UB had was, is there going to be enough gameplay? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be enough gameplay? Mm-hmm. It, and so they were worried that not leaving... If the, the enemies didn't respawn, then it would seem dull yes. to be driving. Yeah. Nice. That's fair. And the point where they realized that, that the respawning, that they respond, you know, the instant respawning, well, it's not instant. You have to actually go to a safe house and right. save, um, or you have to, I think, leave the block... You know, the maps are divided into, like, yeah. uh, eight pieces. Yeah. You have to leave that piece. Okay. If you kill everyone at a guard post, don't go to a safe house and just drive around within that square. They don't spawn. Right. If you leave that square or save, they respawn. So I agree that they respawn too quickly. I agree that that seems crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think that everyone at UB realizes now they should have put, like, 24-hour timers mm. on the respawning. but. By the time that they realized they should do that, the risk of uh, introducing bugs into the into this already almost unimaginably complicated system yeah. was was too great. Sure, that makes sense. So that's the explanation for that. I find it kind of heartbreaking and fascinating at the same time. But you know, even I find smashing through those check posts because such wacky shit can uh-huh. happen at oh, sure. them, that I never got sick of it. I just loved attacking people in that game. <laughs> yeah. I find it one of the most I love shooting somebody with a sniper rifle and then like like hobbling him and making him wounded. Right. And then one of the other guys will try to come up and pick him up. Yeah. Shooting a propane tank and watching that set everything on fire. And then, you know, <laughs> I've seen guys carrying other guys where one of the guys is on fire that's being carried or something <laughs> right. and the other guy's not. And I, I just love burning up African mercenaries. Right. Exactly. Right. And I mean, you know, yeah, that thing about shooting the friendlies, the, the possibility of shooting somebody who's on your side. And you mentioned that in Half-Life 2, you could shoot <laughs> Alex, all you want, and nothing's going to happen. So there's that obvious barrier there. And in Fallout 3, I noticed that this is, I guess, kind of sad that I tried this out, but you can shoot <laughs> anyone except the children. Yeah, I know. I've tried to shoot children in that game, yeah. too, and I think it's a fucking... Do you consider that a cop-out? Yeah, let's just talk about this. Yeah. I don't understand a game that lets you blow up anyone and everything, <laughs> often in the most violent possible ways. Uh, sometimes an entire city. Sometimes an entire city, and yet it yet draws the line at little kids. Right. I guess I understand it now that I'm thinking about it. Why would you even want to let people shoot little kids but that game um, in particular has an interesting line that it draws because little lamplight no you can't kill anybody and big, yet they're all they're, but they're enslaved right, exactly yeah but then there's big town and you can kill the people in big town so where is that line and that kid who starts out in little lamplight and it's time for him to go over to big town i suppose if you wanted to be really scientific about it you could see at what point on the journey are you allowed to then kill him and there that's what bethesda considers now you are a man wow that's getting into levels of emotional complication that i don't even know where to begin. I think I'm projecting too much into the game. <laughs> well, you know, GTA, there's no kids in the streets of Liberty City. Right, right. And then I was thinking about no Russians in Modern Warfare 2. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that whole brouhaha involving the level where you I go around. I think it's just... one of the most disgusting... What My view on no Russian is this, and I've since had this verified by independent sources that I will not talk about, but I wish I could. That sequence is a really dumb guy's idea of a morally intriguing scenario. It's like a moron thinks, wow, what would really blow their minds? <laughs> this is edgy and hardcore. Yeah, oh, wow, this isn't this deep? <laughs> I mean, you're kind, you're shooting at them, you know? Who's really the terrorist? But you don't but, you have know? to, so it's on you, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's it's like, I think those guys in an Infinity War are just, they're very talented, but I, I, just, I just don't think they have a whole hell of a lot to say about human emotion and the games are so badly written so bombastic so 
emotionally incoherent that I've kind of decided I'm not going to play Infinity Ward games or any of those Treyarch. I, I just, that school of first-person shooter, as much fun as I occasionally have with them, about that whole genre that is bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Just fundamentally bankrupt. Sure. Uh, and I really, those games have really gotten under my craw lately. Now, somebody who listens to this might say, well, okay, how can you say that about Modern Warfare? But then you'll talk about GTA 4 in glowing terms. I mean, isn't that game bankrupt too? GTA 4 is funny. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so it's GTA... okay to be morally bankrupt if you're funny. It's not morally bankrupt. GTA is dealing with criminals and right. makes no bones about that. Sure. GTA recognizes that Nico is a bad guy and he's dealing with bad guys, and Nico's trying to do the best out of a bad situation. Modern Warfare takes, like, these psychopathic marines and and rangers and airborne guys, and you don't really even know what their general feelings are on anything because the game doesn't even have the courage to address the politics of the situation that it's addressing. Other than that, like, the people on the top, you know, screw the people on the bottom. and We got a job to do. You know, it's just, I just really resent the complete lack of balls to actually, what would you say is the politics of that game? It seems kind of like, on one hand, this Ron Paul paranoid New World Order stuff. And on the other hand, this kind of of left-wing revolutionary stuff. And on the other hand, this kind of right-wing populist, the soldiers are super kind of stuff. The, the fact that, you know, what the game's sort of thesis about all these uh, very dicey scenarios that they throw around, you know, nuking Washington, right. killing civilians, they, they play with these scenarios with a lot of freedom, but you never have any fucking clue where the people who are, who are creating these games, like, the, you don't have the faintest idea what they think. And I'm not saying that you necessarily should, but, like, you know what the guys at Rockstar love America and kind of hate America at right. the same time, There's you know? that satire on the commercials on the radio and taking the piss out of the American excess and so forth in some ways. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of affection and a lot of... But could you, could, can you explain to me what you think the Infinity War guys think they've accomplished with those games? You know, it actually took a different level with Modern Warfare 2 because the fr- I remember that when I was playing the first one, I had a lot of those same thoughts and, and I mean, I'm coming at it, I'll be honest, I'm coming at it from a very left-wing perspective and I, I'm sort of, I'm not really a pacifist but I'm, I'm very much opposed to sort of concepts of U.S. empire and things. But the, my beef is always with the people who issue the orders and never, of course, with the soldiers and yada, yada, yada. So for the first game, I, I sort of felt like it was, okay, we're starting out with a terrorist execution so it's good guys versus bad guys and these people are pure evil and here come the Americans and the British to come over and you know save the day and put the bad guys in a hole somewhere. And the quotes in Modern Warfare 2, for some reason, it just struck me as so odd to have basically the same structure of the game set up, but then suddenly here's a Howard Zinn quote or Barbara Ehrenreich on the screen. I'm like, what is that doing there? That doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, it's so futile, but it's still worthwhile? I don't... Well, I've read that, uh, again, I have uh, some insider info that They've intended a lot of it to be satirical. So which uh, parts then are satirical? Is the the right way. It's it's like it's like a bunch of kind of lefty people having fun with these right wing sort of go military kinds of ideas. So it's the games. The games are fundamentally leftist sort of screed, but I think they're so cowardly about their politics in those games that you know you would never get that because I just think I just think they're like they don't have the balls to actually try to say anything other than these like giggling teenage boys, you know, putting it, slapping up a Dick Cheney quote next and see, and even the stuff that they do say is borrowed. You you know, they get all of the political juice from putting up contrasting quotes from, 
from from their betters. Yeah. You know, yeah, I've just I've so turned the corner on these games that you know the more that I read about the whole Activision Infinity Ward contra temp, the less regard I seem to have for every single person involved in it. So sure. uh, So okay, you've been in war zones. I mean you've reported from Iraq and Afghanistan, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. What and I'm just curious to know what your experiences there have brought to your perspective on games that depict war. I mean, do you have any thoughts about the Six Days in Fallujah game? Or, or uh, sorry, I before I let you talk. Or the basic idea. I mean, some people will look at, oh, how can you make a video game out of a war? And I think, in some ways, that may be part of the reason why no game about Vietnam has ever done very well. Because yeah. I think there's some sense in which we look at Vietnam as being this area that it's so dangerous to go to. Uh, and I'm just curious to know your thoughts. I think uh, most games treat violence and war pretty shallowly, pretty childishly. And I, d- I think that that doesn't at all mean you can't have a great game, you know, because games are about the gameplay and they're about the moment-to-moment sort of kinetic sensation of what being you know, embedded in the system of the game is like. But I liked Far Cry 2's depiction of this war just because everything was just savage and amoral and nobody was a good guy and you were just one of many assholes fucking things up and just like the, the you know, the, the amorality of that world. Mm-hmm. Until, again, like all games, kind of fucks everything up with the, la- with the last, you know, hour or so. But I don't, I've tried not to hold the last hour of a game against it, you know. <laughs> games are such a weird, difficult thing to try to end anyway. That, uh... So I think, yeah, like, Six Days in Fallujah, from what I read, it was going to be a really fair horror game, not a shooter. Right. It's more of a horror game sure. about the experience of Fallujah that incorporated everyone's insight, and it was just going to try to give you some experiential sliver in video game terms of what close-quarter, intense urban combat is actually like. Mm-hmm. Now, why that is even a problem, like why people get upset that they think the game form trivializes the war, I guess, is mm-hmm. thinking. I, I think that's bullshit. Absolutely. That if someone made a great war game about the engagements we're in right now, mm-hmm. I would be all on that like white on rice. And I kind of don't understand what I call the, Ili- the idiot Philistine gamer, which is the person that, you know, when you kind of push them to expect more from their games, they instantly come back at you with, it's only a game, right. who cares? You know, if all those people would just sort of drop off the face of the earth, I think <laughs> that the medium would probably be a lot healthier. Um, in some ways, I wonder if that is sort of a defense mechanism to people feeling like they're too affected by games. I mean, I, I worry that they want to keep it at arm's length. They want to see yeah. it as something that I only turn on and turn off, and then it doesn't affect me in any way. But it, I think that's ludicrous to think that because we don't do that with music or books or movies or anything else yeah no i absolutely agree i mean i don't think playing violent games for people who are like children or people who uh have like serious issues with emotional stability i would love to have someone explain to me how they think sitting down and going through the motions of basically murder in hyper realistic terms over and over again for hours and hours and hours a day for someone with either a less than fully formed moral consciousness or a disturbed moral consciousness, I would love for them to look me in the eye and tell me that they don't think that that could have any deleterious effect on them. I think it's crazy. You know, the only reason why the First Amendment means anything is because we are deeply affected by what we read, see, hear, and listen to. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. At the end of the book, you say that there are certain games you didn't have a chance to write about, you wish you could have. Uh, there were other games that you had written a little bit about, and then you had to cut it out. I'm just curious to know, and I don't know if maybe you can tell us or not, but maybe you have a sequel coming up, I hope. Uh, <laughs> what were your thoughts about Ico? Um, you said you wanted to... Uh, that's another one that's really high on my list of beloved games. Yeah, I love that game a lot. I'm much more of a Shadow of Colossus dude, though. Sure. Um, I only played... Is it Ico or Ico? I'm not sure. Uh, I've always heard Ico, but... I've only played... Well, ICO. I've only played that once. 
else, but I played Shadow of the Colossus uh, several times. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's kind of like when you really pin people down, they're either uh, eco or Colossus people. Right. I think that's kind of fair for that sky sure. style of game, and, and I'm, more of a, I'm more of a Colossus guy. Yeah. I think it's because eco is more about concern, mm. and it's more about NPC concern. Protecting Whereas, the Shadow Woman and helping her out. Yeah, whereas I think Colossus is more about the cumulative loneliness, mm. and I'm more of a cumulative loneliness player. I like games that make you feel alone. And you said, I mean, I think that leads to the point that you made at the end of the GTA section, which is, I thought, a, a profoundly interesting point about perhaps the best thing that games can do is point at the person who's playing it, and this ha- maybe this has to be enough. I thought that was a very interesting way of expressing it. I guess part of me wants there to be more, like I, I want, you know, I, I, but I suppose then again, when I think about you know my favorite movies, a lot of times I don't know if you have ever seen Barton Fink or yeah, 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 of course. But, I mean, Love those them. movies I think really speak a lot to yeah what it means to be alone and 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 how we go through the creative process. I suppose as a writer, you're legally obligated to watch Barton Fink. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think there is a way in which the game is obviously going to be mimetic in some way, in the way that all good art is. Well, I was just talking to somebody about this on the Magical Wasteland blog. I got into a little friendly debate where someone was saying they don't want game authors to dictate to me their terms of meaning. They don't want me to tell me what they're about. You know, I'd rather take subtlety in allowing me to figure out what it's about. And I, I totally agree to a certain extent. But what if there's a game author, like in a game like... I don't know, um, GTA 4 or something like, uh, well, there's t- tons of games. They so don't need to keep talking about GTA 4, but lo- lots of games that are clearly much more like deliberately authored. And what if the stuff the author's telling you is actually like good and surprising? I don't mind at all being in an on-the-rails, emotionally dictatorial kind of authoritarian game experience where meaning is dictated to me. And I also don't mind games where the pendulum swings more to me as the, as the you know, creating the meaning of the game. I think there are all sorts of viable models. I just want, if, if meaning to be dictated to me, I want it to be something that's actually pretty good. And I think the problem is considerably caused by a lot of I mean, the fact that we have so many so many first-person military shooters. Games that I love. I mean, I, I, I like a lot of them, but it's really hard to come up with something in that format that doesn't feel like a completely half-hearted piece of shit justification <laughs> to just go around shooting people in the head. Yeah. You had also mentioned that you were interested in writing about Indigo Prophecy and couldn't find a way to work it in. Have you played yeah. Heavy Rain? Do you have any thoughts about the... Yeah, yeah, I played Heavy Rain. Well, it was great. It was the first game that my girlfriend played first. Mm. My beloved girlfriend, Trisha, who's walking around the apartment here. Hey, sweetie, I'm talking about you. Yeah, I'm here. She played it first, oh. and... I was trying not to watch while she was playing it. I'd have my headphones on, I'd be typing, and I just she's kind of a full-body video game player. And uh, and so just watching how wound up she got. I think everybody gets full-body video game player in that game in certain Yeah, points. yeah. And then she lost somebody in the middle of the game. And I remember she just put the joystick down and walked away from the, uh, from the cons, from the TV, and she was really upset. And that's when I thought, holy shit, this is a whole other ball of wax. So... I played it through then, and I had a couple, like, at least three moments in that game, and a bunch of smaller moments where I was as upset and engaged with what was going on as I've ever been in any game. My problem with Heavy Rain is that it's written really badly. Mm -hmm. The voice acting is unconscionably bad. My favorite example of that was when the two, the father is playing sword fighting with the kids, and the one kid is watching, and he says, yeah, continue. (laughs) Something all kids say, sure. Yeah, and and it's like these little French kids doing American accents. I thought Heavy Rain was actually pretty great, Uh, even with all of its flaws, and it has many. And I was just, I was, uh, 
at my girlfriend's um, brother's wedding in Raleigh, North Carolina last weekend, and I managed, I got to see Cliff Pozinski. Really interesting happened. Cliff actually said, you know, as a designer, I want to hate that game because it's sort of diametrically opposed to everything I, you know, do and believe. Mm. And yet he loves it. He's really, he really got into it. And I thought, well, that's, that's the whole thing, isn't it? I can totally understand why game designers look at that model and sort of shake the horror. But if someone who's like a really super, super, super smart, talented writer, and it's not to say David Cage and Quantic Dream are, are not talented, but I think if they just took a little bit more care with the storytelling and the character stuff, someone's going to come up with a game in the heavy, along the Heavy Rain model that is really going to be something amazing, yeah. I think. And as I said on that piece I wrote on the website, like for me, one of the things that was frustrating about it, because I had a friend who had been singing the praises of Heavy Rain for months before it came out and how predicting how amazing it was going to be. And, and I agree that there are many amazing things about it. But I think I was so let down by the way in which everything seemed to converge ultimately at the end on this one scene. And it was bound yeah, to happen you're... either there or you're going to lose your characters and obviously everything's going to go ass up before that. And I would love to see – all of us have agreed, I think, that uh, – the possibilities that it presents and the, the potential is so there, and we'd love to see more games on this in this vein, uh, where they do take that chance of having it go in lots of different directions with lots of different endpoints. I thought your suggestion for like a heavy rain that ends in multiple places yeah. was a great idea, yeah, sure. and I thought also a great idea was people who hoped that the murderer would change every time through heavy rain either the murderer was randomized or actually your interaction with the system actually created the murder or something i think that's a really cool idea too but clearly what they did i mean there are so many problems and holes in that story the shit that just makes no sense that they don't even bother to address which isn't a big deal in a video game but when your video game's entire uh raison d'etre as as the father in raising arizona says you know when it's your whole raison isn't that your whole raison d'etre? <laughs> when, when, when your whole raison d'etre is storytelling and characters, yeah. then you need to get that shit kind of right. Amen. One of the things that we cover a lot on the website, or we try to look at it as close as possible at the indie games on Xbox Live. I don't know if you've ever yeah. taken a look at any of those, if you have any thoughts yeah, about yeah. the potential I play those. There, I play some of them. And favorite ones that you would recommend? Or? Uh, I made a game with zombies, and it's oh, of pretty, course. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. I played that one, How to Talk to Girls, which... I wanted to hurt everyone involved. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one. I can talk to girls too, instantly. <laughs> I just want to see. Uh, I like um, Kaluki. Kabu- um, do you ever play that one? It's kind of like a Sim City, except you have a little space station. It's it's really cool, actually. It's really fun. Yeah. Uh, space Giraffe, I, I really liked. Dishwasher, I thought was yeah. pretty great. Uh, I, I really get sick of the hack and slashing after a little while, but sure, I thought sure. like the style of that game was tremendously, yeah. tremendously compelling. I should play more of those games because I have a feeling those are where the really interesting game designers are obviously going to come out of. There are, but there's also a lot of stuff that people have a chance to make a game, so they're just going to make a clone of whatever game that they like like to play or you know i feel like you know uh the big triple a games are like novels or they're prose right and those indie games are like poetry (laughs) i mean just to return briefly to politics you know we talked about war zones and so forth but in terms of how games present folks especially foreigners it seems like uh arabs muslims people in africa a lot of times are presented as like bloodthirsty savages Uh, if you have any thoughts about the tendencies there (laughs) or the potential or the ways in which games are in some ways selling to people with some preconceived notions and challenging that might lead to less game sales or so forth. And- yeah, maybe. 
I thought the whole kerfluffle over Resident Evil 5's racism stuff, like the people who said it wasn't a problem, and I think most of the people who say that aren't aware that maybe this is a controversial statement, but, you know, Japan is one of the most, like, openly racist societies in the world uh, toward black people. And, uh, you know, I lived in Southeast Asia for a while, and I've spent a lot of time in Asian countries, and there is, a, like, a weird fascination with black people in a lot of Asian cultures. And I've seen in uh, like Korea once, I was in Seoul, and I saw literally people would cross the street to avoid walking down the street with you know, the black person. I don't think that's common. Right. I don't think that's like, but I'm, I've seen that happen in like Korea in 2006. Right. And again, not saying that this is common or it happens all the time, but th- there is more like open struggling with racism in those countries than I think we can really imagine. Right. And so to say that like a Japanese game developer using images of a big white guy shooting people loose and wearing tribal masks in an African setting isn't like massively problematic. Right. Don't really know what they're talking about. Right. I think the portrayal of foreign cultures and foreign people in games is generally pretty disgraceful. Uh, not to dump an alpha protocol, but I just played this level where one of the levels takes place in Saudi Arabia. Wow. <laughs> and the amount of shit that they don't know about Saudi Arabia in this. There's a, quote, terrorist training camp in Saudi Arabia. But here's the thing about Saudi Arabia. All the terrorist training camps are outside of Saudi Arabia. Right. You know, the Saudis ensure that by funding them all. Right. I just think, like, most game developers don't probably know a whole hell of a lot about mm. stuff and maybe don't do a lot of research. I really wish more games sort of bothered to like you say you know show people from non-western countries in a slightly more prismatic way and i've I've shot a lot of brown people in my career as a video game killer don't get me wrong but when your only real like engagement with them is that one camera shot you know when it shows a guy throwing like pat the other guy in the head who's loading a missile launch i mean you get to know the locusts and gears of war better than you get to know (laughs) that's a very good way to put it i think and then finally just to end up thinking about the future uh there's a lot of talk as you know about connect and move and tall and 3ds and things just curious about how you think that might change the way we interact with games or not i think there'll be some really cool stuff coming out for that but um i think most of the connect and move stuff is going to be probably casual games for the family and i'm sure there'll be a few games that try to incorporate connect and move stuff like heavy rain is going to be all move in fact i'm really pissed that the downloadable content that was supposed to come out is not being delayed for the move release of the game which i i mean look the wii waggle stick is kind of that was the whole point of the Wii, right? And yeah. now more and more Wii games aren't even using it. Th- that, to me, says something. I have a hard time seeing how anything that makes you look as preposterously diff- weird and, and humiliatingly like funny as doing the Kinect does in your living room, how that's ever going to catch on in a way that feels good. I Unless everybody's at the party and they're really soused. And- I'm very dubious that this stuff is going to catch on in a way that, that goes gangbusters. Yeah. Well, like I said, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you and uh, thank you for the fantastic book. I think it's a really interesting look at a lot of different games that have been very uh, uh, influential and, you know, things that I've really loved playing. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for being with us. Well, I, I appreciate it and I mostly appreciate uh, having discovered your website, which I think is was just terrific and which I will be visiting uh, frequently in the future.